Well, if you're able, please stand with me in respect and honor of the reading of God's holy word. And this morning, our scripture reading will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. I begin there as Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things while in the body, whether good or bad. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To open your Bibles once again, this time to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're back into our verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians 2. We'll be looking at verse 16 this morning, reconciled to God. We're going to have the chance to look at another glorious doctrine that we find in the Scriptures, something that's very precious to us. And that is the fact that we who are in Jesus Christ, who have put our faith in Christ, have been reconciled to God. 
I used to love looking at the illustrations of biblical scenes in my first Bible. And, you know, a lot of times the kids' Bibles will have a lot of pictures in there. And, and it is full text but uh, of the Scriptures. But those pictures were great for me to get started on. And one of the ones that um, impacted me deeply was the very first one. And it was where Adam and Eve are being driven out of the garden. And in that picture, you see them fleeing the garden with their their hands covering their face in disgrace. And then when you read the text next to it uh, in Genesis 3, that chapter ends with these chilling words, speaking of God, so He drove the man out. What a tragic day that was for humanity to be alienated from God like that. Let that sink in. What happened there in the garden? They had sinned, and because of that sin, God drove them out. He drove them away from His presence. Now, He did that in grace, that was part of it. Part of it was in His righteousness and holiness, but it was also in grace. You see, they were now His enemies. And to remain in His presence would mean death, not just the spiritual death that they had just received for, for their sin, but they would lose their physical death as well. So, uh, it, they couldn't remain in God's presence. And... It's so tragic because they could no longer enjoy the intimate fellowship that they had once enjoyed where God would come and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. That was gone. And Adam and Eve were powerless to do anything about it. They could do absolutely nothing to fix the mess that they made. But... As we've seen in previous lessons, they fled the garden with a promise of hope from God. It wasn't just, get out of here, I don't ever want to see you again. It wasn't that. It was, you have to go from my presence. My holiness will not allow you to stay in my presence. But I leave you with a promise. And you remember the promise of the seed of the woman. Today, we're going to look into how that promise of hope was fulfilled through Jesus, the promised seed of the woman. We will see in Ephesians 2.16 that through His death on the cross, Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God. And this took place in Jesus' body, the church. And that's the theme of what Paul is going to be teaching us today. In verse 16, only Jesus provides hope to helpless humanity. Only Jesus can reconcile Adam and Eve's descendants to reconcile them to God. And this hope only takes place in His body, the church. Or say it, we can say it this way, Jesus is the only way and His church is the only place for hope. Well, let's talk about for where we're at in Ephesians to kind of get our minds into the midst of Paul's discussion. And so as we look at the outline 
uh, on the next slide. <clears throat> we, what, what Paul's doing in this second half of chapter 2 of Ephesians is reflecting on the change in the corporate status of, in particular, the Gentiles. Okay, so because the Ephesian church was mainly Gentiles, and so he's primarily addressing them at this point. This is the change in their corporate status. And then to break that down, we've already looked at verses 11 and 12 that by lack of spiritual privilege, Gentiles were separate from Christ. Now, unbelieving Jews were separate too, but that's a different discussion, okay? He's talking to the Gentiles right now. He says, because you didn't have all the blessings of the Jews, that is one of the ways it shows that you were separate from Christ. And then we're working our way now through the next part of chapter 2, where in Christ, Gentile believers have been brought near to God along with believing Jews. And so now he brings the Jews into their into the discussion. They've been brought near to God with believing Jews. That's verses 13 through 18. And then let's break that down a little bit at a few parts we've already looked at and then some that are going to be new to us. So first, Jesus brought Gentile believers near to God. Now, not just not just every Gentile, not just every Jew, but those that are believers. He brought them, Jesus brought them near to God. And then we also saw the next part, Jesus created a new people of God. So what he was doing in that is creating this new people, this one new man, as he calls it. In verses 14 and 15. And then today we're going to look at verse 16. Jesus reconciled both groups to God. He reconciled both groups to God. And then we'll look at next week. Jesus pronounced peace and he gave both, both groups, access to God. So that kind of helps you to see what Paul, where he's going with this and how his, his argument, if you will, the discussion develops throughout and see, kind of gets you into the context now. So, Verse 16 is the second half of a two-part purpose that Paul is telling us why it was that Jesus tore down that dividing wall, that barrier that stood between Jew and Gentile. And he told us back in verses 14 and 15, that was the law of commandments. That was the, the covenant that had been given to them through Moses. That stood between them. And Jesus, in his death, tore that down. Why did he do that then? The first, which we already looked at in verse 15, is that he rendered the law of Moses obsolete to create one new man out of two distinct groups. So they were, they had been distinct, Jew and Gentile, and, and there was no mixing. And now he's created one new man, if you will, one new body. That was the first purpose. And so we have verse 16 starting with the word and. It's joining these two purposes together. So what is the second purpose? It is this. It is to reconcile both of them to God. You see, while he's talking about bringing them together and reconciling them together, there's something that even more basic has to happen, far more important that has to happen. They have to be reconciled to God. But this is all interwoven where it's happening, where he's bringing them together and reconciling them to God. And so that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. So uh, I want to start reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, pick up a little bit of the context here. So he says, but now 
and this is the the change. Now that the change has happened to them corporately, now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And so our first main point is going to be this, as we break down that theme. Jesus broke down the, the dividing wall. Why? in order to reconcile both groups, the Jews and Gentiles, to God. In order to reconcile them to God. Now, as, as we've already been talking about in previous lessons, we find in this passage, 11 through 20, 22, he is talking about the Jews and Gentiles being reconciled to each other. Okay? That's not what he's talking about here in verse 16, because in verse 16, he's, he's going to narrow his focus and he's going to talk about both groups being reconciled to God, not to each other. So he's doing both in this overall passage. But here in verse 16, it is just about reconciling us to God, which then makes it possible for us to be reconciled to each other. Now, this word for reconcile that's used here, the Greek word, Paul probably coined it. They can't find any use of it prior to Paul. And Paul liked to coin words, you know, because he had these grand, rich theological ideas in, in that he wanted to explain. And a lot of times there just wasn't a good word for it. And so he would make one up. Now, he didn't just make it up out of thin air. He would take words and put them together. And that's what he does here. So. Originally, the, the base word that he started from, that word group referred to an exchange, where you, you make an exchange one thing for another. But what he did to that base word is he added a preposition. And that preposition, what, it, what he was intending was to intensify the basic word. And so the basic form of the word before he intensified it, meant to exchange enmity for friendship. And so we can go ahead and go to the next slide. And, okay. I already warned the, the, the tech guys that it was going to be a little tricky today for them to keep up with me because, because I, I'm like all over the place here in my notes. So um, these guys are good as gold because they haven't thrown anything at me yet. So. The word, the basic word meant to exchange enmity for friendship. See, do you get that? To exchange enmity, that hostility, and to exchange it for friendship. Not to add, to exchange. And what Paul wants us to understand is that the exchange of enmity for friendship, when he added the preposition to it to intensify the word is he wanted us to know that this is a thorough exchange. That means that the hostility that was there between God and us sinners is thoroughly gone, completely wiped away. There is no more hostility between us and God. 
And now, sometimes as Christians, we have a hard time accepting that and resting in that, but we have to because it is the truth. God has dealt with that hostility, and so there is this thorough exchange. But the other part of that thorough exchange is that the enmity was exchanged for friendship. And it's friendship in its fullness. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go through. So, do you see what's going on here and how beautiful this doctrine is? That we went from a state of being at enmity with God, where there was this hostility and it went both ways. Now, on God's side, it was not sinful. Ours was sinful. It was all sinful. Okay, But there was this hostility between us and God. That is completely gone. Thorough exchange. And then we have now in its place this fullness of friendship. And I, I wrestled with, okay, what word? I needed a word in there. And fullness seemed to be the best to drive. It's everything that friendship should be. And that's what we have with God. And I was telling Terry uh, earlier that after his Sunday school lesson, there's a little bit of a segue there, as there often is, between the lessons. And Job was able to talk with God the way he did because he was God's friend, and God was his friend. He even talks about that, I think it's in chapter 29, about the friendship of God had been, you know, upon him. And that is what Paul is trying to get at when he talks about reconciliation. It's not just that, well, I'm, I'm not in trouble anymore. It's that I have this profound friendship with God. And we're going to start to develop this idea of reconciliation, and then we'll put that on pause here in a minute, and then we'll come back to it. So you'll see why. But Ephesians 2 is one of the chief passages about this beautiful doctrine of reconciliation. The other chief passages on it, 2 Corinthians 5 uh, which Kevin read for us, Romans 5, 1 through 11, uh, Colossians 1, 19 through 23, which is real similar to the Ephesians passage with some few differences, but those are the primary passages on reconciliation. We're not going to go into all those, but I'm going to draw upon the others as we go through and develop this doctrine to understand it better. Being reconciled to God is one of our deepest needs. And if you you want something to help you when you're sharing the gospel with people is you need to help them understand that is their deepest need to be reconciled to God. And then that can lead you right into the gospel, you know, because they may say, well, you know, I, I believe in God. But even if they say they don't believe in God, you know, they really do. And you can say, I'm sorry, but still you say you don't believe in God, but you have to be reconciled to God because he is real. And that's your chief need. And, and, of course, you know, there's different ways you can go at it, um, reconciliation being one of those. But it's a great one to use to get them thinking about their enmity with God and their need for reconciliation. You see, the reason we need reconciliation is because Adam represented us and as a people. And when he sinned, we all were now at enmity with God. It applied to all of us. And and you might say, well, that's not fair. You know, I would have chosen differently. No, you wouldn't. Every time you sin, you prove you would have done the exact same thing. And so, 
we all became alienated from God. We've all sinned. And so all of us are God's enemies. The penalty for our sin stood in the way. You see, as we talk about this, we caused the alienation. It wasn't, well, you know, God should have just gone easier on Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, how long had they been around, really? And No, they, they we, in them, caused the alienation, the separation. But amazingly, God is the one who takes the initiative in reconciliation. God doesn't say, you know, okay, you made the mess, you clean it up. I mean, that's what we do with our kids, right? Okay, they make the mess, you teach them, you go clean it up. It's a good thing. Now, with this situation, though, we were not capable of fixing the mess. And and we can talk, you know, at other times, and we have, that we really didn't even want to. But the fact that we cause the mess, and God is the one who takes the initiative to fix it, if you will, to reconcile us. It just tells us the greatness of His character. You know, in Sunday school, we were talking about how, how patient God is and how wonderful He is as God to be so patient with us when we pour out our complaints to Him. And here we see the greatness of His character once again. That he, in his deep compassion and tender mercy, is the one who decides that I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to rectify this. Okay, so we're going to develop Paul's thought a little bit more on reconciliation. Um, but before we do that, before we can more fully define it, we need to, to see his thought developed throughout the rest of the verse. Because it's all going to be part of that. Okay, So the second point as we broke this down is this. Jesus reconciled them, Jews and Gentiles. He reconciled them together in the church. Okay, so look at verse 16 again just to refresh our memory of it. So he says, and and he might, he, he broke down the dividing wall, the barrier, so that he might reconcile them both in one body. Both in one body and reconcile them to God through the cross. Okay. This term body helps to keep emphasizing throughout this passage, as he does, on the oneness. There's the oneness of Jew and Gentile. You see, we talked about this before. It's not that, okay, God will reconcile the Jews to himself, and then he'll reconcile the Gentiles to himself, and then somewhere in eternity they might meet. It's not that at all. Okay, That's not what we find here. It is right now in this one body that we will find this oneness. When we're reconciled in that one body, we're placed in Christ. It is in Christ that this reconciliation happens. It can't happen outside of Christ. Okay, That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. And what is his body? Is it talking about Christ's physical body? No, it's talking about what he told us at the very end of chapter 1, where he said which is his body, the, what? Church. And that's what he's talking about here. It is in the church that he reconciles Jew and Gentile. So let's look at a couple of slides here. So the first one, you can see, you get Jews and Gentiles there, and you see how they're separated from God. Both 
are separated from God because of God's wrath that is due to our sin, okay? And that we're alienated. And so there's no way that we could ever get through that wrath. There's nothing we can do because I know every religion in the world, except for genuine biblical Christianity, thinks that, okay, there's something we can do to appease God. But biblical Christianity says there's nothing you can do to appease God. God has to do all of the appeasing himself, and he does that through Jesus. And then we have to trust in what Jesus has done. And that sets us apart from all of them. Okay, so there's no, no way that we could have gotten through. So let's go to the next slide. And so we tried to illustrate that here. So both of those groups, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, are, and again, not separately, but they're put into the body of Christ, okay, and it is there in that one body, and now with the arrow, that we are reconciled to God. You see, that's the only way we can move. And, and we'll come back to these slides again. They're going to look a little different in a minute. I'll show, develop more of this. But the only way that we can move toward God is to be in Christ. Because Christ, the Lord, the, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is always able to draw near to His Father. So we have to be in Him in order to draw near to His Father. Okay, so for us to be reconciled, we have to be in Christ. So now, the, the final main point is this. Jesus accomplished that reconciliation through His death on the cross. He accomplished it through His death on the cross. Again, verse 16. So he broke down that barrier so that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it, the cross, having put to death the enmity. So what is this enmity? And this is a little different than what we saw back in verses 14 and 15 on the enmity. That was, that was the law, the law of Moses that was the enmity. Here it's not that. Okay, so the enmity, well actually the barrier was the law. The enmity was the hatred they had for each other. The enmity here is not between Jew and Gentile, but it was the, it's the enmity between God and the sinner. Okay? Enmity represents hostility or hatred towards someone. Okay? So, it, it can be sinful and it can be righteous, okay, as we're going to see. Enmity is the opposite of peace. And again, this enmity is between God and sinners. For example, the enmity from our side... These are scriptures that I've given you a list. Uh, if we go ahead to the next slide. Um, so I've got scriptures on there at the bottom for you, or toward the bottom. <clears throat> we were haters of God. We were enemies. We were alienated from God and hostile in mind. And then, as James says, our friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That's what the Bible says about the sinner. That outside of Christ, this is what's true of every human being. Enemies, hostile, alienated. So that's from our side. Okay, so it's not just that, you know, we're, oh God, I'm sorry, and I want to be your friend. And No, we're, we might say that, but we're saying it as an enemy. We're not saying it on God's terms. We are enemies of God. Now, did God have enmity toward us? Yes. 
It was because of our trespasses against Him, breaking His law, that caused His righteous enmity toward us. And He has. Now, it's not that, it's not, you know, God, God saying, oh, I just hate you. It's not that. That's in between, enmity between us. That's the way we act, right? <clears throat> but it can be this, you have transgressed my law, and the penalty for that is your death. And so my wrath, God speaking, hangs over you. Okay, And that is what the enmity is from God's side. The wrath of God. Now, again, this is God's amazing character. So, think about you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Think about you before you were saved. Okay? The pre-salvation... John or Mary or whoever, right? Okay? And if you're not yet saved, this might be you. God has both enmity toward you. So before you were saved, He had enmity, but He also had love for you. And and I want to call out that we reject any of these ideas that in false versions of Christianity... They have God the Father as, you know, this this hard-nosed judge who's like, there's no way I'm ever letting you in heaven. And then you've got Jesus coming along, oh, Father, let him in. And, you know, but actually in, in some of those versions, the, the Jesus also is like, no. And so what do you have to do? Well, go to mom, Right. Mother Mary, will you talk your son into talking the Father into letting us in? That is that is unbiblical, that is blasphemous, that is horrible. That is not our God. Because toward the sinner, <clears throat> the elect sinner that God is going to save, those of us who are believers, that's us. God had, prior to your salvation, both enmity toward you and love. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. And that's one of the... Sometimes it's just, okay, I'm accepting that by faith. God said it. It's got to be true. I accept it. Because we can't really do that very well. As a parent, you you have some little tastes of that. Because you discipline your child because you're righteously angry with them for doing something bad. But you're doing it because you love them. So you have a little bit of a taste of that. But it's hard to see how we have transgressed the holy God. And we can understand that enmity. But then to say that He loved me too at the same time? Oh, isn't it that, you know, God hated me until Jesus saved me? No. There was a hatred, yes, but I don't mean it in in the, the human sense the way we talk about it. God says... You deserve my wrath. You deserve an eternity in hell. But, because you're one of my chosen ones, I love you. And I'm going to rectify the wrath problem you have. And that's where Jesus comes in. You see, Jesus doesn't have to talk His Father into loving us. His Father has always loved us. Jesus has always loved us. The Spirit has always loved us. They can't change. They don't change. They have always loved us. 
<clears throat> Paul stated this beautiful truth in Romans 5.8. He said there, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, He proved it on the cross, what I was telling you. You say, well, John, I don't know about that. Well, it's right there in Romans 5, in one of the passages on reconciliation. He proved it on the cross. He proved on the cross that He had both enmity toward you and love. God's righteous hostility was satisfied in the very same place that His love was manifested. Again, we come back to the cross. And that's what Paul does here in Ephesians 2.16. It is, he says, through the cross. It is there on the cross that Jesus put to death the enmity. And it is His death on the cross that makes reconciliation possible and puts it into operation. You see, Jesus didn't die just to make us savable. When He died, He saved us. Now, it wasn't applied to us until we put our trust in Christ, but it happened. It was a done deal in God's mind. It was a a redemption that actually redeems True peace cannot happen between God and a sinner apart from the cross. Paul explained Second Corinthians 5.21, we read earlier, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it's beautiful verses. It talks about these grand truths. Jesus who knew no sin ever in the sense of personally. And and to to drive home to us what happened there. He, Paul uses those words that they always make me uncomfortable. I don't know about you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. That just you know I mean I believe I don't it's not that I don't believe it, it's just I feel uncomfortable with that. I don't like saying that Jesus was made to be sin. Now he didn't become sinful. But he's trying to drive home the fact that He thoroughly dealt with our sin. Okay? And so He took on sin's fullness, the fullness of the penalty, and died in our place. He satisfied God's righteous requirement, and He took away our guilt before God. So let's look at a couple of slides. So variations on what we've already seen, but I changed them up a little bit to bring out some more of these ideas that we're talking about. So this first one... You've got Jews and Gentiles. There's God's wrath in the middle separating us. And it's because of our sin. <clears throat> His wrath hanging over us, if you will. And then God, and you can see how we are alienated. So if we then go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, this is how it happens. So we're just looking at it from another perspective, right? So the, through the cross, we were reconciled. Through the cross... Jesus dealt with God's wrath. He dealt with our sin. And, of course, that's the wrath is the penalty for that sin. He dealt with them together. Okay, he had to. But he did that through the cross. And so then you can think again to the earlier slide where we had all of us being in that one body reconciled to God. All of us together. Okay. And that's the beauty of that. So I want you to listen to the discussion among... Um, Commentators and theologians, uh, just the 
the grandeur of, of this truth about reconciliation. So uh, one of my professors, Harold Honer, <clears throat> he said, he talks about how rec- our reconciliation was costly. Reconciliation exacted a heavy price. <clears throat> what was that price? The death of God's Son. And Peter talks about the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. <clears throat> uh, Scottish commentator John Eadie explained, the cross which slew Jesus slew this hostility. I love that. And that, that's, a, that's a great idea to hang, <clears throat> excuse me, hang on to, to meditate on, to prompt you to worship. You see, the cross that slew Jesus slew the hostility that was between us and God. <clears throat> Another commentator, uh, theologian more so, <clears throat> Hermann Ritterboss, pointed out that there was a, a double movement in Christ's work of reconciliation. Okay? And, and he's going to, I'll try to illustrate it here. <clears throat> he said, not only does God turn in Christ to the world in order to effect reconciliation. So picture there. So what, what's happening is Christ, God, he turns to the world in order to reconcile them. Okay, so there's the one part of the movement where he's in this double movement. Then he goes on. But Christ also stands in the place of men to offer himself up to God to expiate or propitiate the sin of his people. And so, so then that same Christ who turns to men to reconcile them also turns to God to pay for our sins, to make propitiation or expiate our sin. Say, okay, Father, I died on the cross. I paid for their sin. Accept that sacrifice. Accept my sacrifice for their sin. So you see there's that, that double movement. So it's just beautiful to see these, these men wrestling with this idea and just bringing out the beauty of it, the grandeur of God's character. Okay, so now we can form a fuller definition of reconciliation, and this is what I have. So reconciliation is... The, let's go one more. Thank you. Uh, reconciliation is the act of God whereby he removed the enmity. Remember that, that thorough exchange. He removed the enmity that separated hostile sinners from himself. And he restored them to himself in a permanent, intimate relationship. That friendship, that fullness of friendship I talked about having accomplished the reconciliation through the work of Christ on the cross. That's a big mouthful, right? But I wanted to bring out all the things that Paul's talking about here in 2.16 of Ephesians, but also in those other three grand uh, reconciliation passages. Uh, So you'd have it, and you've got the slides, so if you can't get it all down, um, I've sent those out to you. So, but that's what it, but it's the act of God. It's not your act, it's not my act. It's God's act. He's the one that did it. <clears throat> Paul taught in Romans 5.1. Because what I want to do here now is we need to look at what is the connection between justification and reconciliation. Okay, Because they're, one leads to the other, but then they also are two different ways of looking at the same thing. So talking about 
justification. In Romans 5.1, Paul says that reconciliation is the result of justification. Okay, So he says there, having been justified by faith, so when we put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, God declared us not guilty. We were justified. So that having happened, he says, we have peace with God. That's reconciliation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, reconciliation there is the result of justification. But we can also look at it a little differently and should. And, and Ritterboss does this and it's very helpful. He's, he's talking about how justification and reconciliation view the same saving act of God from two different perspectives. And so... There, there can be times when you're sharing the gospel with someone and you take the route of justification and that's kind of what's going to get the conversation going and talk about their need of being justified before God, their need of being declared righteous before God. You can go that way. Or you can talk about their need to be reconciled to God. Now, they both happen at the same time. They're both together. You know, logically, justification happens and then reconciliation. But you can't see either one of them happen in your soul when they happen. And so, as far as you're concerned, they happen at the same time, right? <clears throat> Justification, and, and you've heard this before, I think Kevin has talked about this, <clears throat> is a forensic concept. It's courtroom language, what that means, okay? <clears throat> we were declared righteous by God. So, the heavenly judge <clears throat> has declared us not guilty, Okay, just as in a courtroom, when it's all said and done and the the judge strikes his or her, you know, gavel and says, not guilty. You're not guilty. Okay, that's not true of you. And that's what the divine judge has done. That's justification. <clears throat> but we can flip around and look at it from a different angle. And... And so reconciliation looks at the same saving act from the perspective of a social relationship. So instead of it being judicial and forensic courtroom, because, you know, we have broke God's law. Law, remember, okay, that's courtroom language, okay? Somebody makes a law and courts uphold it, okay? So <clears throat> you can look at it from that perspective. But then there is that it's not just that, though. Sometimes that's you know, we only think of that and we forget this doctrine of reconciliation. The doctrine of reconciliation looks at it from the perspective of a social relationship. And so Ritterboss points out how reconciliation speaks in general of the restoration of the right relationship between two parties. And so as we put those two ideas together, we can say that we are now in a right standing before God. And so our enmity has been exchanged for friendship. You see, and, and I want us to take that away, not ever to forget the wonders of justification, but to, to embrace more fully the wonders of reconciliation, that we now have this friendship with God. Negatively speaking, reconciliation is the opposite of enmity. We, that's what we see here in verse 16. Next week we'll see, positively speaking, it is a relational state of peace between these now reconciled persons, between us and God. Okay, <clears throat> so it is a relational state of peace, and we'll, we'll develop that more next time as Paul does in verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> so, being reconciled to God is nothing that you or I can do. We can't accomplish that. 
It is a gift from God. Remember Ephesians 2.8. It is the gift of God. And he's talking about the whole of salvation there. Okay. Romans 5.11 tells us that we receive reconciliation from God. He actually uses the word receive. We received it. We don't do it. We don't, okay, I'm going to be really nice for a long time. Make God happy. Happy with me. And you're not going to do that. It didn't work. You have to receive it as a gift. Okay. From Christ. If you have not yet put your trust in Christ, you need to be reconciled to God. Turn to Christ by faith and receive his precious gift. And for those of us who have already received it, I want to ask you this. Do you live as friends with God? That might bug you a little bit. And our whole discussion from Sunday school was was tramping around that whole type of thinking. Yeah, I'm a little, you know, he's God, you know, and it's like, I know. And yes, there's the fear of God. There's still respect. But one of the things that came to my mind is, you know, I grew up, my, my dad was, you know, he was tough and strict and, and uh, you know, judgment reigned. And, and, uh, and, but yet, when I became an adult, I found one time that while I still had a deep respect for him, he was my friend. There came a point where he was my friend. Still my dad, but he was my friend. And so that can help us to understand what we have with our Father in Heaven. That, yes, He's our God. We still, we still respect Him. We still fear Him in that worship respect. But He is our friend. And, and as we talked about this morning and I mentioned earlier, like Job, to be able to talk with God that way. Not disrespectfully. Job was respectful. He was pouring his heart out. Right? Do you live as friends with God? Does that characterize your relationship with Him? And Job was God's friend. Moses was God's friend. Jesus told His disciples, I've called you friends. Do you take that seriously? Do you realize the friendship you have with God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? And do you live that way? Well, as we come to the table, let's think on this, what we talked about earlier. The price was steep. The price for our reconciliation was steep. The price was God's Son. His life. He had to give up that life. He had to die. And then, as John Edie said, the cross took Jesus' life, but it also slew what separated us. These are some good thoughts for us to meditate on as we partake of the Lord's table. So think on these.